1: Welcome to the St. Louis Pain Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dave Candy. I have with me here today Rafi Salazar, and he is an occupational therapist, and we're going to be talking about the topic of chronic pain. So, thank you for joining me today, Rafi. Can you please tell me a little bit about yourself and just how you got into the field of chronic pain?
2: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by trade. And early on in my career, I began uh, working in an outpatient upper extremity specialty rehab clinic at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that that's really just fancy for saying anybody who had an issue from their neck to their fingertips that was not solved in primary care came to our clinic. And one thing that became very apparent treating all of these patients is that they were being referred to us for nondescript chronic shoulder pain, for example. And digging into it, um, we really realized that a lot of the the issues that they were having, a lot of the pain that they were having really stemmed from other disorders right we had uh, a lot of veterans so uh, post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd depression psychosocial factors were all affecting their lives in a way that manifested in real experienced physical pain and that kind of led me on the path as a clinician working in that department to kind of explore different methods and modes for treating chronic pain we ended up uh, doing a big interdisciplinary pain management program at the VA that I worked at, which was Charlie Nord VA Medical Center in Augusta. And we had like psychology, uh, psychiatry, uh, physiotherapy, so uh, kinesiotherapy, aquatic therapy, occupational therapy. We had like 10 different specialties involved. Voc rehab was involved. Um, And it was just a great learning experience for one interdisciplinary pain management, but then also just kind of learning about individuals who were experiencing longstanding and persistent pain um, and just following them through their journey of trying to trying to gain back some semblance of normalcy in their life from a from a function standpoint.
1: And for people who may not be as familiar with chronic pain, how would you describe the difference between chronic pain and the more familiar kind of acute pain that people are used to dealing with?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think um, it helps to define pain too. So so pain itself, as described by um, the International Association of for the Study of Pain, so I, IASP, is something along the lines of an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience that's associated with um, either a real or perceived tissue threat or damage. So if you think about that's what pain is, it's your body responding to a threat um, that might be real, it might be um, perceived of tissue damage. So chronic pain or acute pain, Let's start with acute. Acute is something that's very sudden, it's uh, sudden in onset, it, and it's related to a specific event. So you fall and twist your ankle, um, you, you throw a, a baseball and hurt your shoulder, you twist funny and hurt your back. Like those are acute pain in that it's very, it's a sudden onset, you feel it immediately and it's related to something very specific. I was throwing the baseball when my shoulder hurt, or you know, I felt the pop, or I stepped off the curb when I felt my ankle twinge, or, or whatever it is. Chronic pain, on the other on the other hand, really relates to something that maybe started out as acute pain. Um, maybe it was it, it started when you threw that baseball in your, with your shoulder and felt that pop, uh, but it is that pain now has lasted longer than the typical time frame for healing of normal tissue. So the, the research varies about what qualifies like acute versus chronic pain. The, most of the breakdown though um, is pretty consistent that it's generally somewhere in, in the three to six month range. So if you're having pain, um, maybe from an acute injury and now it's three to six months afterwards, um, that's outside of that normal time frame for tissue healing. And that's what we would consider a, a chronic pain.
1: So, is chronic pain a disease itself? Then,
2: At, you know, there's there's been a big move in the literature to kind of define it as such, um, because again, we've been thinking about pain as like, you know, the the fifth vital sign, or it's it's a symptom of something else. However, in instances of of true chronic pain, and there's there's three different types that we can talk about here. Um, that pain may happen regardless of whether or not there's a real biological or physiological process going on. So when, you know, when I think about pain, or when you think about pain, a lot of times, you know, we're thinking, okay, I cut my finger, and that damage to the tissue is what signals that sends the pain signals up to my brain, and then I, I have pain in my finger, right? Um, with chronic pain, and there are specific types of chronic pain that happen regardless of whether or not you actually experienced a damage to your tissue or an or a, a issue with your tissues, if you, if you would, to quote Adrian Lowe, um, because if you think about that original definition of pain, it's that physical and emotional response in response to a threat, whether that threat is real or perceived. So, yeah, there is there is an argument for for discussing chronic pain in particular as a disease process um, because it is one of those things that doesn't necessarily need to involve an injury for you to experience real pain. I mean, this pain is, is real. It's not something that's just made up or that maybe that, you know, it's all in your head, for example. Like these are, this is a real sensation and we need to figure out how to deal with it on its own as an experiential uh, impact, if you would, rather than just the symptom of, of another injury or something like that.
1: Yeah, that is a common stereotype, and we'll probably dig into that a little bit deeper here in a bit. But um, uh, you mentioned three different types of chronic pain. Can you just kind of expand on that a little bit about the three different types of pain and what makes each of them different and how a person who might be suffering with pain that's gone on longer than it should uh, can know which one they might be suffering with and how to treat it?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, So the literature defines three different types. Different types of chronic pain, or classifications, if you would, of chronic pain. The first one would be called like a neuropathic pain. So neuropathic, and this results in some. It's either a lesion or a disease process in the. This is a big word: somatosensory system, but the the nerves and the tissues and all that. And what this means is that maybe there wasn't an acute injury. Maybe there wasn't a real. Uh, an injury to the to the muscles or the tissues themselves. but this is actually a disease process happening with the sensory system. So maybe it's a a lesion or um, a diseased point on a peripheral nerve or a spinal spinal cord nerve that's sending those signals of pain, right? Um, and that is one type. So this neuropathic pain, which would be something is actually, there's a lesion going on. There's something pathophysiologically wrong with the somatosensory system itself. Um, and then you've got nociplastic pain, which is also kind of referred to as um, like nociceptive pain, but it's the type of chronic pain. And it's, this is again defined by the International Association of, of uh, for the Study of Pain as it's pain that arises from the altered perception of the signals that we're getting basically. So in order for for this to, cla- or for someone classify or qualify as like having quote unquote no see plastic pain it would have to be uh, pain that's been going on for around three months in duration um it's regional rather than discrete so instead of it being like my index finger has pain it would be like oh my whole hand or maybe my forearm maybe it kind of moves up into my forearm and my elbow and back down to my hand um and then the, the report of pain, the, the third uh, qualifying factor is the, the report of pain can't be entirely explained by um, either a nociceptive or a neuropathic mechanism. So um, it's regional, it's distributed, um, it's been going on for three months, and we can't point to a lesion in your wrist, like carpal tunnel, for example. We can't point to an entrapment of that nerve as being the reason for this pain. Um, And then the final uh, kind of qualifying characteristic is that this person experiences hypersensitivity, which is really just really hypersensitive, or um, light touches can cause pain um, that are at least present in the region of the pain. So maybe just going with the hand again, since we're here, um, it's been going on for three months. It's kind of regional. It's not just the specific area. Um, it's not a lesion in the nerve, maybe we did a study and there's nothing going, it doesn't look like we have carpal tunnel. But if you touch or rub your hand very lightly, you're getting a lot of sharpshooting pains or it's really sending the signals off. Um, that would really qualify as what we call plastic pain, which is again, this pain that's really just altered perception of the, of the input that we're getting, right? Um, and then the final uh, the final type of chronic pain, if you would, or classification of chronic pain is is called central sensitization. And that's defined really as just what we call an amplification of the neural signaling of the nervous system. So again, this is like if you think about the threshold for most people, or for the typical developing person might be right here before uh, they get pain. So you can step on the floor, for example, and maybe that the nerve signals are right here and they don't get high enough to, to send the alert signals to the brain to, to trigger a pain response. It's with central sensitization, what we see is that that threshold gets lower and lower and lower so that even you know, normal or typical input that we would get from walking around, for example, or from putting your hands in your pockets is eliciting that response. It's sending those danger signals. So there's, those are the three different types. And then the types of treatment, you know, varies depending on, on the type, right? If it's a neuropathic pain, I mean, there's a disease process there, which probably requires that you go see a physician and speak with some specialists about, okay, where is this you know this lesion occurring in the nerves, and then what are the treatment options? You know maybe it's some in- steroid injections, maybe it's sometimes it might be surgery. Um, for things like neuroplastic pain uh, or that uh, perception type pain, then then you're talking about okay the types of the types of things we need to do to to address that type of pain really involve realtering our perception of the inputs that we're getting, right? So maybe this involves something like mindfulness, um, deep breathing, that body work, you know yoga, stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of research and there's a great book called The Way Out and I can't remember who wrote it, but um, he talks about neuroplastic pain. The word he uses is neuropathic pain, which is the same type of thing. Um, and he uh, the, the author of the book describes something called somatic tracking which is basically, um, it's mindfulness pointed to, to the parts of your body that are, that are in pain. And what you're trying to do is you're acknowledging the pain, you're seeing the pain, you're observing the pain, and then you're reassuring yourself and your nervous system and all of that, that, the pain, that these are normal sensations and they shouldn't cause pain. And there's actually pretty good uh, research using somatic tracking to decrease that um, altered perception of pain. And then with things like central sensitization, where you have that threshold that's gotten lower and lower. Well, the goal, obviously, then is to increase that threshold. And how can how do we do that? Usually with some sort of um, sensory retraining and, and things like that. So it it's pretty complicated. I mean, when you're talking about things like central sensitization and nociceptive pain and neuropathic pain, those are big words. A lot of things get thrown around, and it is it is fairly complicated complicated. It's hard to tease out on a podcast. But that, those are some some general guidelines that can kind of help you figure out, okay, if this is the type of pain that I'm experiencing, you know, what, what kind of treatment should I be considering?
1: yeah it is a lot to jam in in a podcast and yeah. if you're listening to books this, have been written about this subject <laughs>
2: yeah
1: uh, absolutely uh, for people listening in the audio only version and yeah, rafi was using an example that i use about a threshold and it made some hand gestures but you can check out the the video version of this podcast on youtube um and, or just picture a cup filled up with water almost to the brim and you're just putting that little last bit in to top over the cup and spill it over. Um, But uh, those were great examples. So you've got basically on one hand, your acute tissue based sort of acute nausea pain. And then on the other hand, chronic pain and those sort of subcategories underneath of those. So how do the psychosocial factors work into this? You mentioned at the beginning that you dealt with a lot of psychosocial factors at the VA and, uh, how does that affect chronic pain?
2: Yeah, I think for a long time, you know, if you think about our understanding in general in healthcare about mental health or cognition and its role in our perception and experience of the physical world around us, I mean, PTSD as a diagnosis really only came about in the late 60s. I think it was finally codified in like 1968. So if you think about it. the long history of medicine that we have um, going back literally to you know thousands of years um, to just from 1968 or 1970 to now you're talking just 50 years. that's such a small time frame that there's there was a lot that was going on and that's still going on that we really just don't understand because we didn't know where to look right. Uh, one thing that became very apparent though in studying primarily veterans, with PTSD coming back from from wartime uh, and having experienced some sort of battlefield trauma or service related trauma was that. One of two things can happen, um, and they both generally happen simultaneously, so, like if you are involved in some sort of traumatic event, right. Um, and that leaves an impression on you. What we know from the literature now, after having studied it for the last couple decades, is that Traumatic events in particular alter the the chemical makeup and even sometimes the structure of the brain, making a person at risk for higher or um, or what they call negative affective states. Maybe maybe it's depression, maybe it's something um, like a mood type disorder. However, also when it relates and when it comes to the pain piece of it. Um, this the part of the brain so your limbic system which involves your amygdala um, which is responsible for fight or flight for example is the same is involved in both the pain response and these those emotional responses right so if you think back again about pain the definition that it's both a physical and an emotional experience um, if you experience something that's emotionally traumatic it would stand to reason that its sense is being processed through the same part of that brain, that amygdala is setting that fight or flight response, that there's going to be some kind of bleed over or carryover into that other part, right? That other experience, whether it be the physical or the, or the emotional side. And what we know from the literature is that there are people, and I've I experienced this myself treating people in the, the department of veterans affairs. Um, they have chronic pain, maybe they have shoulder pain, um, they're at a, maybe they're rating their pain at a scale of one or two out of 10 when they leave the clinic. And this was not uncommon. And they would go um, over the weekend was like the 4th of July or something like that. And maybe fireworks are going off and this veteran would have a a flashback or what we know from the literature is a flashback is like reliving of that traumatic experience. Your brain doesn't recognize it as a flashback or not. It's all real to the brain. Um, And they would come back and they would rate their pain at a scale of nine or 10 out of 10. Well, look at this veteran, like um, they didn't fall. They didn't reinjure themselves. They didn't pull a muscle. They experienced a psychosocial stressor that resulted in a real and, and experienced change in their level of pain. Well, th- it happens that way, right? Like something in the psychosocial affects the physical. When, and it also works the other way. So let's say you're in chronic pain or you're experiencing pain a lot. Again, those pathways are very similar. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, and it's not uncommon for people that experience chronic pain or experience pain over a long period of time to begin developing some emotional problems, right? Maybe it is depression. Maybe it is anxiety. Um, we talk a little bit about in the clinic that I work at, like kinesiophobia, people being scared of movement because they're afraid that they're going to experience pain. Maybe they're backing away from social activities. They're not going out because they know they're going to experience pain. Um, and it's it's very much a two-way street. So... At, in so much as we're incredibly complex as people, we're not just joints and tissues and muscles. We have a brain, we have emotions. And in order to, to really address chronic pain effectively, we need to look at those, not just what's going on with the joints um, and not just what's going on with, with the brain and with the emotional side of things. We need to, to look at a, a treatment uh, path that kind of blends all of them together and addresses each component for each, each person. Absolutely.
1: An example you gave, like the fireworks or the car backfiring, is sort of the traditional example of PTSD. But that can happen from other things too, like adverse oh, childhood experiences, um, you know, abuse during you know teenage years or in adulthood,
2: um, uh, other you
1: know, traumas like deaths at the family. Uh, all kinds of things
2: can, yeah. can bring it about. There's a great book. Um, Bessel van der Kolk wrote it. It's called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. I think it came out in like 2014, 2015. Um, but he runs the Boston Trauma Center. Um, and it's based on his research with veterans. And then he also did a lot of uh, research with uh, children who grew up with uh, really severe emotional and physical abuse. Um, and the whole book is he, he outlines in painstaking detail the limbic system and the fight or flight response and how that translates to real uh, chronic pain development later in life. And it's a good read. It's not for the faint of heart because there's, (laughs) there's some pretty um, intense, I mean, trauma is trauma. So, um, but his, his explanation of, of the, the link between what is going on psychosocially and the effects that we're seeing in the clinic physically is, is really, really good.
1: And we'll get the uh, links to both of those, those. books that you mentioned oh, and put sure, them yeah. in the show notes as well for people who may be interested in learning a little bit more. Yeah. Now, you mentioned about the brain kind of producing this sensation of uh, you know, danger or fear or threat or however you want to label it. But that doesn't necessarily make the experience any less you know, harmful in the person's mind or it doesn't make their suffering um unreal, like they're, they're not making it up. Can you explain a little bit more going back into that stereotype of people saying it's all in your head and
2: you know, how that's not really quite true? Yeah, yeah. I, I get this a lot in the clinic, and I would get it a lot when I was at the VA, like someone would come in and they'd, they'd say something along the lines of, well, x-rays were negative, MRI, maybe they went and had an MRI, maybe they had a CT scan, or they did a nerve study. And, you know, they were very distraught because they the x-rays were were negative right no no unusual findings so one of two things happens right the the pain the the patient then either believes themselves that they're just maybe i'm just making this up or the worst effect would be like the clinician that they treated that treated them said well there's no reason for you to be in pain because your x-rays are normal Um, both of those are bad. (laughs) The reality is because pain, again, going back to this definition, we're gonna we're gonna go back to it a lot because it's so fundamental that pain is an emotional and physical experience that is in response to a, a tissue threat, whether that threat is real or not. So, regardless of whether there is real tissue damage happening or that threat of tissue damage is real or not, the pain that you are experiencing. Is real, um, and they've done functional um, MRIs where they can see that, like the parts of your brain that light up when you, you know, hit your finger with a hammer, are the same parts of your brain that light up when you're experiencing like nociceptive pain, for example. So, it is a real experience, and I think people get discouraged when they see a negative X-ray or a negative MRI because then they they start to feel themselves like, okay, maybe I'm just making this up, maybe this is all in my head. And the reality is like, well, your head is involved, your brain is involved, but that doesn't mean that what you're experiencing isn't real. What it means is that physically, that we can't find anything in your in your joints or your tissues to point to why you're experiencing that pain. So that just means we need to go a level deeper. You know, it's not just something as simple as, okay, you pulled this muscle. This is something that requires a little bit more specialized skill, a, bit, a little bit more specialized uh, treatment and in-depth look at what's going on with you in in particular in your different situation, your unique situation, so that we can tailor a treatment plan that's really addressing the fundamental root of your pain, which is going to be that perception of that pain or that perception of that threat. And maybe it is something like uh, your threshold is lower, or maybe it's something like a, a real a nociceptic or no, nociplastic pain that we need to address. Either way, we want to be able to to get past this idea that just because an X-ray doesn't show a broken bone, or just because an MRI doesn't show um, some kind of tear in a ligament or a, or a tissue, does not mean that you're not experiencing real pain. Because again, pain is an alarm signal. It's your it's like your body's uh, um, check engine light, if you would. And you need to you need to explore that, even if the easy reason that you might be experiencing that check engine light isn't the reason for it being on, right? So it's the same type of thing that just because you can't point to something very, not superficial, that sounds bad, but something like an x-ray and say, that's why I'm having pain, doesn't mean that your pain isn't real. In fact, it is very real. We just need to address why it's happening, why you're experiencing that pain.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how visual we are to just want yeah. to have something to point at and say, that's it. That's what's causing our pain. Yeah. You know, the the car analogy is great. Like your tech engine like goes on and you want it to be a flat tire or a belt or something like that. You can just replace it and move on. But you know, sometimes it's a problem in the electrical yeah. signal where you in the system where you look at it and Everything is connected, but the
2: electricity isn't moving through. Exactly. Well, and I think there's there's some aspect, too, of like the, the stigma around chronic pain, because it kind of blends into, if this isn't a real biological issue, then is it a mental health issue? And there's a big stigma about mental health. And there, I think there's a, a part of patients that I treat, for sure, don't want to be... Um, labeled like that, right? They want to be able to go to their family, or their friends, and say, "I went and saw somebody, and it is a disc in my back that's causing all this problem," because everybody kind of understands that, right? If you if you go <laughs> go to your friends and say, "I've got you know, plastic pain, and this is you know, it's a perception in my brain, and we got to try to figure it out," like ov- automatically moves you from this. Okay, this it's socially acceptable to pull your back or have a bulging disc. For some reason, it's not so acceptable or just kind of out of the norm to have something going on with your somatosensory system that we need to address. So there is a this idea of like the stigma around pain and mental health and the psychosocial factors of our health that... Over time, have been breaking down, but not quickly enough, in my opinion. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. You know, it's perfectly acceptable to say, oh
2: man, my back's really hurting today. But, yeah.
1: you know, if you say, man, I'm feeling really depressed, I'm sad, exactly. everything's going wrong, like people look at you like you're like, I don't want to hear that. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just kind of weird how that that happens, but that state certain stigma is uh, certainly still around. So we've talked about uh, the, psychosocial components or the psychological components? What about the social components? What about the relationships that pain causes between people? For example, when you can't participate in the activities you like, you can't do sports you want to do, you can't go do things with your family or with your friends, or you can't take care of your kids, you can't go to work. How does that affect people?
2: Yeah, I think it, it, it's one of those things that can kind of lead into a tailspin, right? Like a kind of a self-feeding downward spiral. If Particularly with people that are used to being active and being out and about and doing things, um, there is an emotional component about missing, you know maybe missing social events that you wanted to participate in, or um, not being able to do things that you were able to do previously. A perfect example. Um, uh, the day after Christmas, I was uh, trimming my dog. We've got this doodle, this golden doodle that my my wife wanted for the kids. So I'm in there trimming it. And I stood up and got, got this like sharp shooting pain in my back. I mean, I almost fell on my knees. I was in so much pain. And this pain lasted all like four or five weeks. Um, like last week I, was the first week that I was like, oh man, I can kind of move and it's not hurting. Um, and I'm a pretty active dude. I run, uh, you know, several miles every week. I do push-ups. I exercise, try to stay fit, mainly because I've got kids and I want to be able to play with them. And um, just those few few weeks of like not being able to get down on the ground and you know, roll around and, and, and play with my children. Like emotionally myself, I was like, oh man, I'm a bad dad. Look at me. I'm just one of those people that's like sitting on the couch and I'm watching my kids play instead of doing things. And I don't even have chronic pain. You know, like I knew that I'm, I'm a young, healthy guy. I'm going to get back to doing things eventually. For some people though, just the, just the fact that you're being removed from Maybe it's an activity that you really enjoy doing, a hobby, a sport, or maybe it's your social connection. Maybe you play pickup ball with your your college friends and you've done it every you know every week for months, and now you're not doing that. That has a real emotional toll. Um so that's one aspect of it like the, the there is an emotional um, an emotional threat, if you would, when you're removed from doing things that are meaningful to you, and that can open you up to what the research calls negative affective um, or negative affect so mood disorders depression anxiety all of that the other thing that it can do and the other aspect of, of kind of this interpersonal relationship and how it can affect pain is we mentioned the stigma thing so again what if you're used to being physical, maybe you work a a manual job like roofing or construction or something, and now you're limited because of that. And you're the, maybe you're the breadwinner. And now you have to face your spouse who's expecting you, you know, there's these expectations that you're going to go out and work and be hard and um, generate the income. And now you can't, or you're limited in doing that. That also has an emotional toll. And all of those emotional stressors, as we've outlined earlier, have a real impact on The experience of pain right there that limbic system is working both ways um and it can definitely affect the level of pain that you're experiencing in your day to day um and then there's there's the whole piece of how interpersonal relationships can actually help improve your pain, right? If you feel emotionally connected, supported by those around you, those important relationships, whether it be a spouse, a significant other family, or uh, a group of friends, or even the clinician, there's, there's good research showing that um, they call it therapeutic alliance, but the relationship that forms between a treating clinician and a patient that's experiencing chronic pain can actually improve Clinical outcomes in the long run. Um, so the same way that um, being pulled away from relationships and pull, being pulled away from social interactions can damage us emotionally, being pulled in or welcomed into strong supportive relationships can help increase our ability to, one, cope with the pain that we're experiencing now, but then um, having hope for the future of recovering and be- becoming, again, a fully Uh, a full participant in the life that we want to live.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. Um, And the example you mentioned about the golden doodle that you had or (laughs) injuring yourself playing basketball, that's a great transition really into the connection between acute and chronic pain, because we sort of talked about it at the beginning, like, well, there's acute pain that's tissue-based, and then there's this really kind of strange, complex thing known as chronic pain over here. But in most cases of chronic pain, it doesn't start out as just being created in your brain or psychosomatic. Um, It's usually a case of acute pain where there was a a tissue-based injury, and it just never went away, even though the tissues may have long since healed healed up. So how does that happen?
2: Yeah, usually it can be, um, again, so you injure yourself. There's a real, it's specific. You know what it is. I pulled my back, you know, trimming my dog or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes, um, and it, the research, because everybody's very different and our, our somatosensory systems process things differently, it's very hard to get like a standardized thing. We can't be like, well, if you do XYZ, you're going to end up with chronic pain. But we do know, for example, that movement immediately after in the timeframe after an acute injury is very, very beneficial in preventing the development of chronic pain later. So for example, they did a study, and I don't know, um, I can't remember what journal it was in, um, but it was a study about uh, people that experienced an acute low back injury. And um, this is, a they kind of looked at at medical charts for, uh, to kind of gather their data. So this wasn't like they injured people and then had them lay down in bed. But what they did was they looked at the, the people that the, the medical records that they studied, and they divided them into two groups. And the first group of charts that they studied were people that experienced uh, an acute low back injury, for example, um, and then tried their best to return to normal activity as soon as possible. And then the other group of people were a group of people that experienced some kind of cr- uh, acute low back injury, some kind of strain, pull, or whatever, um, and then they had bed rest for two to five days. Um, and what, just looking through their their clinical charts and their outcomes, what the researchers found was that people that laid in bed for two days or more after a, a back injury were something like 75% more likely to end up with a chronic pain or still be experiencing low back pain six to eight months after the initial injury. So, you know, what does that tell us as, as clinicians, as just people in general that might be experiencing some kind of pain is that um, the worst thing we can do <laughs> if we have some kind of acute pain is just totally not move that area. Um, again, you want to do this under the guidance of a, of a clinician that can, one, kind of make sure that, okay, it's safe to move this because th- there are some instances like if you fracture your back, you don't want to be doing things, right? If you fracture your arm, you need to make sure you're, you're splinting it appropriately. Um, but assuming that there's no uh, pathophysiological real damage going on that's going to require um, some sort of higher intensity care, if it's just a, a musculoskeletal injury of some kind of strain, a sprain, um, we want to make sure that we're moving for two reasons. One, movement keeps you active, keeps you limber, keeps you from stiffening up, prevents you from losing range of motion. But the probably the more important thing is that again, if you think about this threshold that we have, um, the worst thing that you can do is not move because that threshold's gonna get lower and lower. And if you're scared of injuring yourself again, um, scared of injuring that back again, um, you're going to become more hypersensitive to the normal kind of stimuli that you get from sitting and moving around and, and doing normal activities. So again, this is not something like you fall off a ladder I, I don't want you to, like, go run five miles the next day. But we do need to be uh, cognizant of this correlation between um, immobilization and not moving and the development of chronic pain later. Um, and I think that's a that's a big one is movement, to our knowledge right now, is the best pain medication that we have, both for chronic pain and even for some acute uh, injury that's, that doesn't require, like, surgery or splinting or casting. Um so we need to make sure that we're we're continuing to be active despite some of the pain we may be feeling, because ultimately, it's it's going to be good for us to do that and not to sit and develop some kind of plastic pain later in life, right?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. To respect pain, but not to fear yes. it
2: necessarily. Not exactly. to
1: be fearful of movement or kinesiophobia, yeah. like you mentioned
2: earlier. Exactly. Yeah. And if you think about that pain being, again, it's an emotional and a sensory response or a physical response in response to that threat, whether that threat is real or perceived, we want to do everything that we can so that our somatosensory system, our nervous system, doesn't perceive normal movement as potentially threatening, right?
1: Absolutely. So what are the expectations with chronic pain? Say someone suffered with pain for three or six months or longer. And yeah, you know, they've gone through kind of the traditional route of getting tests and x-rays. And you know, is there an expectation that uh, they can improve from that? Or sometimes people get frustrated and
2: they just think, man, am I gonna have yeah. to deal with this forever? Is this just yeah. the way it's gonna be? I I think that's totally it's a valid <laughs> it's a valid concern. Um and because I don't know about about you, but I've like I felt this way when I had this back pain going back to this example from a, a month ago. Like um like you almost when you're in it and you're feeling pain you can almost not perceive or not visualize what not feeling in pain will look like right or somebody that's got like a cold for example like i I can't ever like i'll always feel this post nasal drip or this sore throat or this headache or whatever it is like we as humans just kind of freak out about it. maybe it's just my personality but but um it's very hard for us to kind of visualize what it'll look like if we're experiencing in the here and now pain, right? Um, So while I can't tell everybody that you're gonna get healed and you're gonna not experiencing pain uh, in the future, um, I think we can provide hope. Um, And obviously it depends on the type of pain that you're experiencing, the type of chronic pain, Um, whether it's that, like if it's a neuropathic pain, maybe that's gonna require some type of real intervention for you to kind of overcome whatever the issue is and and experience some, some pain relief, if it's nociplastic or or central sensitization, there are some things we can do to kind of self-manage, to kind of increase our threshold for, for activity. Um, But there is a chance that there, there's going to be some ongoing um, self-management, if you would, in perpetuity um, that doesn't necessarily go away. So I'm thinking primarily of somebody who's got um, neuroplastic pain or something like that, and maybe they do some somatic tracking, maybe they do some mindfulness, um, and that gets them, you know, they're able to do some things again. If you live an active life, you're probably going to bend that wrong way again. You're probably going to do something else that kind of triggers a pain response. And what we can do is build in the resiliency so that even if you experience pain, and I tell this patients all, all the time in the clinic, like, listen, just because you're not feeling pain now at the time of discharge or, or after this appointment, like, doesn't mean you're not going to experience pain in the same spot ever again. But hopefully what we've done is we've given you the tools and the ability to kind of manage it on your own, to give you the, the resiliency to be able to overcome that when you have a, a relapse in the future, right? Um, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope from just reading the literature and the research is that you know, our brains, because of neuroplasticity, which is just the ability of the brain to, to change or rewire, like our brains are constantly changing from the moment we're born until the moment we die. So to me that that gives me a lot of hope that just because we're I'm experiencing, or you might be experiencing this chronic pain that's from a somatosensory issue now does not mean that you're going to be experiencing it forever. Your brain is constantly changing. It's constantly adapting. It's, it's constantly wiring and rewiring new neural pathways. So that means there's always hope that we can, kind of retrain that nervous system so that the chronic pain, um, maybe we feel a little bit of stiffness, maybe a little bit of pain, maybe we relapse again, but it's going to, to on balance, become better over time, right? And it's going to look different for every person, um, but there, those are what, some of the things that give me hope about uh, working with and, and really talking with people who are experiencing chronic pain.
1: Well, absolutely. And even if you, the pain doesn't completely go away, if you can bring it down from a roar to a whisper and yeah. not being able to do the things that bring you happiness and joy to being able to do those, then for most people, that's enough.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um. I had, so I run a podcast, it's called the Better Outcomes Show, and I had Bronnie Thompson on. Um, she's a, she runs the the interdisciplinary pain management program at Otago university in New Zealand. She's like a, a big, big name in the, in the pain science realm. And yeah, she was, was actually
1: about- on uh, about a year or so ago. On, oh, on cool this deal. Too. Yeah. So she was,
2: um, she was, she and I were talking about treating chronic pain and she talked about in the people that she saw in her clinic were all bikers. Um, and they would run out and they would, you know, ride their bike on the weekend and they'd be in a lot of pain or whatever afterwards. And she'd say, you know, like, was it worth it? And they would, these, these patients would light up and be like, absolutely it was worth it. And she's like, okay, well then that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, we're not trying to totally take away your pain so that you never feel it again. We're trying to let you do the things that, that light you up, that get you excited. And then if you have pain, we're going to give you the tools to manage that after the fact but we should never think about it as because I have pain, I can't do these things that I that I love to do. I think that's the biggest takeaway: is we we want to, in, as much as possible, engage in what what gives us purpose and meaning and um, what's meaningful to us, and then obviously work on strategies and techniques to to kind of manage the pain that we we know might come from doing those activities. Um, but we don't we we don't allow ourselves to be crippled. Um, by the the fact that we're that we have pain, right?
1: Absolutely. yeah, it's all just about uh, bringing value to your life and being able to do the things you want. And yeah exactly. you know, again, pain's just a a warning signal. And sometimes it's worth it to go through that brief period of uh, discomfort or, or suffering to allow you to do something that you you really, really enjoy and would regret not doing, yeah, so kind of wrapping up, if people want to, Um, find you or get more information from you? How can they access some of your information? Or if they happen to be in your area of the country, how can they get treatment from you?
2: Sure, yeah. So the best way is probably the clinic website, which is uh, the clinic I run. is called Proactive Rehabilitation and Wellness. And the website is www.pro-activehealth.com. So pro-activehealth.com. And we have a lot of videos and articles specifically about pain and chronic pain and treating that type of pain Um, so you can go there follow us on you know facebook instagram youtube all those places Um, and we are in augusta georgia so if you are experiencing pain and you're within the region of us um, you can call the office or just go to the website pro-activehealth.com and and reach out to us there
1: and uh, for people who may want to access
2: your podcast as well how would they access that Okay. That's uh, the Better Outcomes Show, and you can find that at www.betteroutcomes.show.
1: Wonderful. Any closing thoughts that you'd want to leave people with today, Rafi?
2: I think the biggest thing that I would want somebody to know or walk away with from this episode would be that if you are in chronic pain or you're experiencing pain, persistent pain, like don't let discouragement get you down. Um, I like to say that we're all one or two decisions away from a radically different life. Um, and that's true, both of our health and of the, the pain we experience as well. Like it doesn't need to be life shattering decisions either. Like small baby steps, you know, like choose to move <laughs> would be a big one. Um, but two, one or two small decisions every day can help put you on a path towards kind of long-term healing and recovery. And it's just a matter of not becoming discouraged in that, uh, the pain that you're feeling now
1: that's a wonderful message to close on and thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your information and thanks to everyone at home who's listening if you found this episode helpful subscribe to the podcast so you can get notified of our future episodes
0: thanks for listening to the st louis pain expert podcast we hope you've enjoyed the show if you live in the st louis area and would like dr candy's help to find a solution to your pain visit our website at stlpainexpert.com. email drcandy at dave at stlpanexpert.com, or call Dr. Candy's clinical practice at 314-941-3970. If you're listening from outside the St. Louis area but would still like some help, feel free to contact us to learn more about our virtual health coaching. Regardless of where you live, Please share our podcast with anyone you know who would benefit from learning more about pain and what can be done to relieve it. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform so you get notified when we release a new episode. Thanks again for listening and we hope you'll enjoy us again soon.